1: We're doomed. Yeah, what's going on in the Middle East? The uh, ridiculous situation on the southern border, the economy being in the toilet, uh, men playing women's sports, even, I don't know, Mason Rudolph possibly replacing Kenny Pickett at quarterback. That's all important stuff, but it really doesn't matter because the future leaders of the world are afraid of menus, you know, the list of foods available in a restaurant. Here's the headline in the New York Post, quote, Gen Z suffers from, quote, unquote, menu anxiety when dining out, with many too scared to order their own meals. A restaurant chain in the U.K. called Prezo did a study, and, quote, about 86% of Gen Z adults aged 18 to 24 in this study admitted they have suffered from, quote-unquote, menu anxiety when dining in restaurants compared to 67% of all respondents. Some of these young adults, 34%, reported feeling so anxious, they wind up asking other people at the table to speak to waiters on their behalf. Tell him, I'll have a cheeseburger. <laughs> they did a study in the U.S. and found that 3 in 10 Americans have menu anxiety, but Gen Z has the highest number by far. Apparently, they're afraid they won't be able to find what they like, or even worse, they might not like what they end up ordering. Somebody else who did a study is quoted in the New York Post. He says, Gen Z is more afraid of the world than previous generations. Now, these are the people who you know, you've seen and continue to see uh, waiting for the school bus. They're, some of them are grown, but they're still doing it now, the kids. They're, they're out there waiting for the school bus with their parents hovering over them because who knows what could happen to you waiting for the bus. Apparently the problem comes from having lived their lives in a mostly digital world, according to this esper, expert at the uh, New York Post. And so they're now uh, being incapable of dealing with having to actually interact with human beings on a personal level. Just keep that in mind the next time you see a family sitting at a table in a restaurant and all of their kids are looking at either a smartphone or a tablet. I know you've seen that. As I've said many times, words can't describe how glad I am to have grown up when I did. When we come back, our media expert, Jeff McCall of DePaul University, will be here to talk about the latest in media bias and what's happening on college campuses with the free speech stuff. And in our second half hour, Carnegie Mellon University, which has received millions of dollars from Qatar, Qatar, sorry, where it has a branch campus, is being sued by a Jewish student for allowing systemic, intentional uh, anti-Semitism on campus. We'll talk to her lawyer. Stick around. Well, this hasn't been a good week or two for your favorite elite colleges and universities. They've been accused of being anti-free speech, if not uh, also anti-Semitic, which kind of goes against uh, what you'd expect on a college campus. Jeffrey McCall is professor of communications at DePauw University. He's also a media critic for The Hill, and he joins us now. Jeff, good to have you back again. Thank you, John. So um, you and I spend most of our time here talking about the media But uh, you are right there in the middle of academia, and uh, I see that you wrote about the free speech issue in your column at the Hill. Uh, So how did the presidents of Harvard, uh, Penn, MIT uh, expose what's wrong on too many campuses?
2: Well, you know, it's really sad that we have the presidents of these so-called elite colleges embarrassing themselves in front of a congressional hearing. But I'm really glad this happened, actually, because it kind of ripped the mask off and showed the nation, I think, what is really happening at these colleges around the country, because these colleges all have free expression policies, as they call them, but they're really not designed as free expression policies at all. They're designed actually to restrict the flow of ideas on a college campus and to indoctrinate students and to punish those students who get kind of out of the orthodoxy, so to speak, and so that's why I'm glad that this happened. And sadly, these college presidents did not uh fare very well uh under the light of a congressional hearing because they really exposed themselves as being able to, un- to being able to explain their own policies for one thing, but worse than that, I think it demonstrated that these people have basic- basically no awareness at all of what a free expression environment philosophically is designed to produce. And that is the free flow of ideas, you know, uh, to promote reasonable ideas, to promote thinking. And these college presidents are supposed to be the intellectual leaders of their colleges. And they couldn't explain the philosophy behind why we have free expression on college campuses in the first place. So they've had a lot of heat afterwards. And, of course, the president of Penn eventually resigned. uh, And there have been a lot of calls for the presidents of those other schools to resign as well. And I would just say this, though, too. These college presidents are not unique necessarily, uh, you know, when you compare to other colleges across the country. These people are probably more consistent with the college executives across the country in their lack of understanding of free expression and the intent of their, quote, unquote, free expression policies to actually limit the flow of ideas rather than to enhance it.
1: And how does someone become president of Harvard or Penn or MIT or any other supposedly elite elite uh, university? How does they get to become president of some a place like that and not know how to explain what you just described their school's
2: policy on free speech? How, how can that happen? You raise a great question, and it's very scary to think that the boards of trustees at all of these colleges around the country—it's the boards of trustees alone who are responsible for hiring a university president. And to think that these people went through all the screening and all the interviews and were put into the positions of leadership at these colleges and universities, apparently without ever having been asked that question about how do you define the free expression environment and how do you implement that? And can you distinguish between calls for genocide Uh, versus somebody wearing an inappropriate Halloween costume. And apparently, these boards of trustees are not doing their due diligence, that they're not trying to hire intellectual leaders and academic leaders to lead their universities. Instead, they are hiring ideologues or people who are going to toe the line ideologically and push particular points of view um, or wokeness, if you want to go down that path, rather than to be the intellectual leaders and academic leaders of an institution of higher education. So, you know, these people, these presidents look bad, uh, but they're not alone compared to college presidents around the country. And uh, we've got to put a lot of the responsibility here at these boards of trustees, because they're hiring people not based on what an institution should be doing, but based on optics, or you know, having a woman be the president of MIT, for example, uh, you know, have a woman in science as a leader, and they're interested in optics more than they're interested uh, in conceptual forward thinking, and I think that's very sad. And you know, it's interesting; these these presidents were exposed in front of this congressional hearing, as I said. But keep in mind, the presidents all across the country are allowing the free expression environment at their own schools to disintegrate uh, right before all of our eyes. You might remember last spring at Stanford University of all places, uh, which is supposed to be an enlightened intellectual leader in the nation, a federal appeals court judge from the Ninth Circuit went to give a presentation at Stanford Law School and was shouted down and run off campus. And I'm thinking, wait a second, when you have a federal judge who can't give remarks without being shouted down and chased on campus, off campus. That's really terrible for our our higher education community, generally speaking here. And to think that after that happened, you didn't see a groundswell of alums or intellectuals saying, let's get rid of the Stanford president because the Stanford president has created an environment where a federal appeals court judge can be run off campus for coming to talk about the finer points of law. And so, this is this is a cancer in higher education as I view it, uh, and I would direct your listeners to find my column at The Hill. It was published a few days ago, but they, they can find it by just searching Jeffrey McCall in the search bubble at The Hill's website. But this is a cancer at universities around the country because it exposes that these colleges are not interested in the pursuit of knowledge or the pursuit of truth or merit. They are interested in indoctrination, and I think that's a very dangerous place for colleges and universities. And I might say, not only are there cultural repercussions for this, but there are financial repercussions for this too. Because we've seen uh, anecdotal evidence coming out of all three of those uh, quote-unquote elite institutions, Harvard, Penn, and MIT, where a lot of alums and donors have withdrawn their gifts or just stated that they're not going to be giving anymore. And the sad thing is, these donors have been duped for a long time to think that they've been donating money with a straight face to institutions without having a full accounting of how that money is being used or where, where the values are of their own institutions. And it's very sad to think that alums have with you know good intentions tried to donate money to higher education and not known that it was being used uh, for wayward purposes, but, but it has been.
1: I will be, uh, so I guess I'm going to be talking about colleges a lot here in the next couple of days. Coming up in my next segment, I have the lawyer for a Jewish uh, student at Carnegie Mellon University who's suing CMU uh, and claiming um, blatant anti-Semitism. And this is a university that has taken millions and millions of dollars from Qatar over the last 20 years or so and has a branch campus there. Uh, so that's one thing, and then the other. And tomorrow I have um, Adam Anzievsky coming on. He's from um, OpenTheBooks.com to talk about the billions and billions of dollars, taxpayer tax dollars, that have gone to Harvard, um, Penn, MIT, to that. So I guess what I'm trying to get to here, Jeff, is that when I see this. Uh, it makes me realize that I, by sitting here and earning a dollar, am actually helping to support this stupidity because the government is taking my money and giving it to Harvard.
2: And, yeah, and
1: it's, it's unbelievable.
2: Yeah, and, and to think that we're educating generations of students now who've gone through four years of indoctrination uh, on wokeness to think that the United States is evil to think that Western civilization is evil, yep. to think that to, to think that uh, debate and arriving at truth through reason is somehow a, a signal of oppression uh, is is really mind boggling. And uh, w- one of the philosophers I quote in my column uh, that I would direct your listeners to comes from G. K. Chesterton, who was a philosopher who wrote in England a hundred years ago, basically. But he even warned then that freedom of speech means practically that we must only talk about unimportant things. And we're kind of at that point now where at robust colleges and universities, you can't go to classes and talk about things that really matter, but that we're sitting there around and we're talking about pronouns. We're talking about Halloween costumes, and we're talking about those kinds of things. And we're not talking about, Uh, genocide. We're not talking about the bigger issues. We're not talking about trying to discuss things through reason or the fundamental legal principles that, you know, developed out of the Enlightenment. Uh, And those kinds of things are all left off the table now. And I think that's very dangerous when we at colleges and universities are only going to talk about unimportant things. And, you know, you, you look at over the last several weeks where they've had a lot of demonstrations on colleges where students have been waving uh, Palestinian flags, Yeah. all right? Mm-hmm. Now, by the way, I'm not opposed to peaceful demonstrations, and I'm not opposed to people having their say, all right? But if those same students had shown up anywhere on campus and they were waving Gadsden flags, the ones that say, don't tread on me, oh. uh, you can bet, you can bet there would have been discipline on those kids for, you know, promoting hate, or making an sure. unsafe environment or mm-hmm. promoting the Second Amendment, or something like that, and those university presidents wouldn't have hesitated a second to clamp down on those people for bringing a Gadsden flag, but they don 't mind when you've had protesters raising you know raising Palestinian flags and shouting for for the genocide of jewish students
1: uh, no i can't I'm sorry, but I have to take a little bit of time here to get a plug in for my sainted mother. Because you mentioned G.K. Chesterton, I brought my my mother a tablet, like an iPad type thing, uh, when she was ninety five years old, and I gave it to her. And I, you know, I saw her a week later, and I said, "How do you like that tablet?" She said, "Oh, it's good. There's, um, I guess, I like the free books on there." She said, "I've been reading G.K. Chesterton. I, I never got a, I never got around to read." She was ninety five reading that guy. So anyway. <laughs> That that's, I, I gotta get that plug in every time I hear that guy's name. So, uh, we're talking to Jeff McCall. He's professor of communications at DePaul University. You can find his column at The Hill. Uh, and, uh, Jeff, uh, we have three or four minutes left here. Um, this is a media question, but it's also along the same lines of what you've been talking about. Uh, maybe this all woke up Fareed Zachariah at CNN. He's a liberal commentator there. He did six minutes the other night on how this is a sign. That colleges have to get away from believing they're about promoting a cause or an ideology, and they have to get back to teaching. Do you think many college administrators got that wake-up call from this?
2: You know, you would think, and I, you know, I must say, I watched that video, uh, and I, and I was quite impressed because it, it's well articulated, uh, and it does identify the cancer we see at colleges and universities now. Uh, and, you know, his point that we need to get back to teaching and trying to discuss things through reason is very important because I think he's identified, as many people are starting to now, I think, that colleges are hotbeds of indoctrination, uh, and it's not necessarily healthy uh, to create a society, uh, and particularly with young people graduating, who don't understand the context of uh, enlightened thought. They don't understand the context of how civiliz- civilization developed or the values of their own nation and how those were developed. And, you know, I teach a course in media law here at my university, and I always spend a few days talking about our founders and how they created the First Amendment that was designed to protect freedom of speech and freedom of press and freedom of religion. And, you know, I, the students of my university are very bright, and I, I really, you know, appreciate them a lot. But I'm always astounded at how little context they have and how little understanding they have about our own nation's founders and what visionaries they really were. And, you know, most students can't tell you who James Madison was, for example. And I'm thinking, well, without James Madison, you don't have a constitution.
1: Well, I bet you're you're more likely to get them to tell you that they were slave owners than what
2: you just mentioned, (laughs) right? Yeah. They they if if they know James Madison they know that about him and the mm-hmm. same for Washington and Thomas Jefferson yeah. yeah but they don't know what visionaries they were and that in spite of the nation's flaws over the you know 250 years this is still a shining light on a hill and that these people created a government that is the envy of the civilized world
1: I have to ask you I have about a minute and a half left here I have to ask you an, at least one more media question uh, the Senate staffer video that's out there now. Uh, the guy, the two guys having sex in the Senate committee room. Um, the first uh, Saturday and Sunday, most of the networks didn't cover it, didn't mention it. I'm just wondering if you think if it had been someone on Ted Cruz's staff, if maybe it would have gotten a little bit more coverage.
2: Well, I don't think there's any doubt that there's a double standard there. And, you know, it's very sad to think that these media outlets are basically trying to cover and hide what what should be news? Now, I mean, it's indecorous to have to think about this, uh, and it's not news that we want to dwell on necessarily, but you had staffers, you know, on government property uh, engaging in an act uh, that that's, you know, uh, 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 controversial, let's just say, to uh, the least here. And it would have covered the news a lot if it had been somebody from C- Senator Cruz's staff, and I'm thinking, you know, We sent people to jail for January 6th for people just walking through the hallways, uh, just looking around. And I'll be interested to see whether there are any charges brought in this particular case, uh, because certainly they were where they didn't belong uh, and conduct, you know, behaving badly. And I just think that probably without dwelling on this, it still needs to be on the news agenda somewhere. And it does show the double standard of the media because they're trying to protect the individuals and they're trying to protect, a Democratic senator on whose staff they work, uh, and it really does come off as inappropriate.
1: Yeah, uh, and uh, I have a feeling there's going to be more coming out about that than we've heard so far, but we'll have to talk about that in our next session, and uh, that will probably be after Christmas because I'm off all next week. So Merry Christmas, Jeff. Thanks for a good year, and I hope to have you back on next year.
2: And I'll really look forward to it, and Merry Christmas to you and all your listeners.
1: Thank you, and we'll be right back. Well, I've mentioned here a few times that uh, Carnegie Mellon University has a branch campus in Qatar. Uh, imagine the University of Qatar having a campus in Pittsburgh, you know, kind of like Pitt Johnstown. Well, I've tried a few times to get someone from the school to come on and uh, come on the show and explain the relationship. Haven't been able to do that. Meanwhile, in the past few days, a Jewish student has filed a lawsuit against CMU claiming anti Semitism. She's represented by the Lawfare Project, Zipporah Reich. Is the, as Rich, I should say, is the director of... Reich? I'm sorry. sorry, uh, Zipporah yep. Reich is the director of litigation. She joins us now. Sorry about that with the name Zipporah. I knew a guy who was a, um, a baseball agent named Tom Rich, and he spelled it R-E-I-C-H, but it's Zipporah Reich. And thank you for being on the show.
3: Sure. Thank you for having me.
1: So before we get into the details of the lawsuit, can you explain the relationship between uh, Qatar and CMU?
3: So... U has a Qatari campus. Uh, I can't talk about their legal relationship as I'm not part of the university, but essentially they do have professors that, who used to teach in Qatar, now teach in the U.S. and vice versa. In fact, the professor or instructor that's at question here when it comes to the anti-Semitic behavior used to teach in Qatar. So there's certainly a connection there.
1: Yeah, and and the leaders of Hamas live in Qatar, and they live really well, by the way. Um, In the cancel culture that we're living in now, you would think, and again, we'll get into the lawsuit here in a second, but but you would think that students would be protesting the partnership um, with with Qatar. They're the second-leading sponsor of terrorism in the world.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, but unfortunately, I think Jew hatred is so pronounced these days that that just trumps everything. When uh, students protest and they say terrible things about Jews and call for its genocide and call for the destruction of the Jewish state, it doesn't look like they're looking at anything but their hatred for Jews. And that's very unfortunate.
1: Well, the woman for whom you're filing this lawsuit is named Yael. Uh, What can you tell us about her?
3: Well, Yael was an architecture student at Carnegie Mellon's Architecture School, which is a very prestigious school, as you know. She was looking forward to being an architect her entire life, and she came uh, to school with that intention. She was an excellent student, and she was essentially a victim of anti-Semitism, coming particularly from a teacher uh, who taught in her studio class. And uh, which was very unfortunate because as an architect student, you have about 12 hours a week of studio, of architectural studio class. And the fact that this teacher uh, created a problem for her made it very difficult for her to attend class, and uh, unfortunately that significantly hampered her education. How
1: so? How how did he uh, make it clear to her that He didn't like her because she's Jewish. Uh,
3: So it was, yeah, it was um, an instructor named Mary Lou, and she essentially uh, was critiquing Yael's project. So the students bring in models, and then they explain what the models are about, and Yael specifically did a model about a Jewish community that was using an Eruv, which is kind of a string that allows you to turn a public space into a private space for religious purposes. And so she was explaining that. And as she explained it, uh, this instructor cut her cut Yael off and said, is this the wall? Because you can either use a string or a wall to create that uh, private space. She said, is this uh, what the Pal- what the Israel uses against the Palestinians, you know, to barricade them and she said, no, this is about a neighborhood in Brooklyn, as I said. Um, and she knew that there was trouble brewing right then, but she continued on with her project. And then when she finished her project, this instructor essentially told Yael, well, it would have been better had you done a project about what Jews do to make themselves so hated. I mean, just a, a comment that's outrageous and would never, ever be tolerated about any other ethnic or racial group in this country and yet yael had an impossible time number one getting any kind of relief getting the school to do anything about it and then number two which made it very egregious is that she was retaliated against for complaining about this instructor because this instructor wielded a lot of power at the school in fact When she complained to one of her professors, the professor literally told her, I can't do anything about it because this professor is powerful and helped get me my job. She said, all I can do to try to help you is have you miss a lot of, you know, architectural uh, class, which, of course, was no solution whatsoever for Yael because then she was left without the education she needed. So she may have had, you know, an absence that was excused by this current teacher, but she was missing all the material that she needed to get. So uh, this was really an awful situation.
1: But this teacher was made aware that that, um, Yael believed that this was a a blatant case of anti-Semitism and not just something else (laughs) related to architecture.
3: Oh, no, no, no. Yael told the teacher exactly what happened. In fact, she told her in tears. And the teacher literally said, you know, I don't know what I can do to help you, you know, and this professor that you're complaining about, or instructor, has a lot of power. And the only thing I can do to help you is say that, you know, don't come to class for more than, you know, the first 20 minutes, during which time this instructor is not going to be there. And that was no accommodation at all. That's essentially telling the person who's been victimized that she has to bear the brunt of not getting further victimized. And that's, if you think about it, that's what's happening. It's awful.
1: Your lawsuit, not your lawsuit, but you're representing uh, uh, Yael. Um, and we're, we're talking, by the way, to Zipporah Reich. She's the, uh, uh, with the Lawfare Project. Uh, she's the director of litigation there suing cmu so the suit um uh claims that there is there is quote systemic intentional pervasive and intentional uh, there is a a intentional pervasive and uh environment of jew hatred at cmu so you've given this one example but how how pervasive is it
3: so uh that's a great question and for starters there's there have been many many other incidents uh that have occurred in Yael's tenure at the uh, school, the major incident was this. And the reason it was so major is because she sought help. And not only was she not helped, but she was retaliated against by other professors. Another professor who Yael did not know was very close to the instructor that was anti-Semitic, And when she cried to him about what was going on, he essentially told her that he wasn't going to help her, but to make matters worse, he started mistreating her in class and then gave her a near-failing, undeserved grade. And Yael went from office to office to get help. She went to the Title IX office that deals with discrimination complaints. She went to the DEI, the Department of DEI, They didn't help her. They kept on moving her around, and all she wanted was, number one, an apology, and number one, and number two, excuse me, to get this teacher to get some sort of anti-Semitic training. She wasn't even asking for anything more at that point. But not only did they not give that to her, they retaliated against her. They ignored her. They didn't take her uh, seriously at all or seriously enough to want to remedy the situation.
1: I have a feeling that if you substituted um, black for Jewish here, that the reaction would be different.
3: You it, know, I think if I substituted any ethnic or racial yeah. minority group, or or any kind of marginalized group, mm-hmm. whether it's the LGBTQT+, plus, there would be a greatly different reaction i mean it would be nothing like this everybody is so we live in a in 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 a time where everybody is so super sensitive to marginalized groups that it really is quite shocking that jewish people are treated the way they are why it comes
1: to these why is it do you believe that that's the case because it's blatantly obvious
3: yeah i think um you know a lot of jews Certainly not all Jews, and 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 bizarrely, not Yael, she's uh, not European, not of European descent, but a lot of Jewish people are from European descent. And I think we have a culture in which there's been a classification of oppressor and oppressed, victimizer and victim, and Jewish people, especially since so many of them are European, have just been lumped together in the oppressor group. And it's very difficult for anybody to see Jewish people um, in any light other than an oppressor group. And, of course, that is blatant anti-Semitism. But, unfortunately, that's the society we're living in today. And until that changes, I think we're going to have a difficult time getting rid of or making a dent in anti-Semitism.
1: Um. Have any other Jewish students at CMU claimed to have been subjected to anti-Semitism? And the other part of that, I guess, is um, how many of them might be afraid to to even bring it up if they have been subjected to it?
3: So certainly there's always a problem with people coming forward and saying if they've been a victim of any kind of racial or religious or ethnic discrimination. Um, I'm representing Yael, and so I don't want to talk on anybody else's uh, behalf. You know, mm-hmm. whether there are other students and, and who they are or what they have to say or anything like that. But I can say this was not Yael's first incident by any means. Uh, you know, the anti-Semitism started at school in the form of kind of microaggressions, and then they were getting bigger and bigger. Uh, but we focused the lawsuit on this particular instance because it was so egregious, because she sought help with this incident. And because she was so severely retaliated against, and the injury to her was terrible, she suffered.
1: Yeah, how do you, as an attorney in this case, you know, you described the situation well here, but how do you convince a judge or a jury in a lawsuit that this person was acting based on on anti-Semitism and not just because he's a creep?
3: Well, I mean, that's that's kind of obvious in this situation. That's what makes it kind of an easy case to bring. The comment itself was anti-Semitic. I mean, saying, what do Jews do? You should focus on what Jews do to make themselves such a hated people is just blatant anti-Semitism. It's like, you know, it's something that nobody would ever say without knowing that what they're saying is anti-Semitic. So it's not a secret. It's not like she was just treating Yael poorly and Yael saying that she was being treated because she, poorly because she's Jewish or because she knows this teacher has a problem with Jewish people and she's treating her poorly. No, the actual discriminatory statement itself is anti-Semitic.
1: What is she so asking cr- for in the suit?
3: Uh, In the suit, she's, you know, asking for all kinds of relief. Uh, One of the things that happened to Yael was for the first time in her life, she started experiencing debilitating migraines that she had never had before. So she became physically ill. So she's asking for all different kinds of compensation, you know, including for the medical issues that she developed so she deserves um you know compensation for everything that she's been through
1: what will the effect be on other colleges if yale wins the suit
3: well what, what might what it I be hope, anyway course, yeah what i hope of course number 1 and this is what Yael wants as well Yael is a righteous person and she's selfless it's not easy to stand up and be a plaintiff in a lawsuit, and she's doing that, and she made it very clear to me that she wants to help other students. She wants this lawsuit to send a clear message to universities all over the country that anti Semitism in the classroom is not okay. That if a teacher does do something or say something that's anti Semitic, and the school does not step in to shut that down immediately, the school is going to be held accountable. There are consequences for anti-Semitism. For far too long, there have not been any, and I think that's what's allowed, in part, anti-Semitism to flourish. We want to change that. We want to let everybody know that if you engage in anti-Semitism, you will face legal action.
1: We're finishing up here with Zipporah Reich. She's the Director of Litigation at the Lawfare Project. Uh, I have about a minute left here, um, Zippor. What, uh, have what, if if any reaction have you gotten from CMU? Have they responded at all yet?
3: Well, um, I don't want to talk about the, you know, specifics yeah. of the case. That's for the attorneys to handle. Obviously, I do know that CMU put out a statement in the media because some reporters asked them what they had to say, and. They gave a very weak statement. Not, this is terrible what happened. We'll immediately look into it and make sure to right the wrong. There was no commitment of that whatsoever. It was more like, well, you know, we don't tolerate hate on our campus, any form of hate. You know, just kind of lip service. Stock answer. Nothing that I thought was meaningful. Yeah. Okay, well, uh,
1: when when will this go to trial I'm, I'm out of time here but just real quick when, when, when right
3: when? there's no way to really know that uh because trial you know cases drag on and on yeah. sometimes um there's a whole process of discovery that can take a really long time so we don't know mm-hmm.
1: well i appreciate you coming on the show we'll be keeping our eye on it and hope to have you back on to give us an update
3: thank you for having me
1: thanks for coming on that's zipporah reich and she is the director of litigation at the Lawfare Project, and I would still uh, really like to understand what uh, why CMU is uh, has a branch campus in Qatar and why nobody seems to care about it. I'll be right back. A little sports item here that I may want to pursue a little bit more in the next couple of days if we can. Maybe you remember Rashard Mendenhall, the running back for the Steelers, uh unfortunately for him he's remembered mostly for having fumbled in the super bowl back in 2011 after the 2010 season uh and he's been talked about a lot lately in the last couple of days anyway because uh he put this tweet out i'm sick of average well i guess his name came up as being the um uh the reason for them losing that super bowl and they've defended mike tomlin by saying, well, well, he'd have won another Super Bowl or Ben Roethlisberger would have if Rashard Mendenhall hadn't fumbled in that game. Well, two things. I just saw the video of the fumble last night up on somebody's tweet, and I noticed that there were 14 minutes and 51 seconds left in the fourth quarter when he fumbled, and the Packers recovered it somewhere around their own 40-yard line, and the score was 21-17. So his fumble did not lose the game. Later in the game, Ben Roethlisberger threw an interception. that was run back for a touchdown, I believe, If anybody lost the game, if anything lost the game or any one play, that did. So they were wrong about the people of a misconception about Mendenhall being responsible for losing that Super Bowl. But here's his tweet. I'm sick of average white guys commenting on football. Y'all not even good at football. Can we please replace the Pro Bowl with an all-black versus all-white bowl so these cats can stop trying to teach me who's good at football? I'm better than your goat, meaning go greatest of all time. So, Rashard Mendenhall is, uh, it's an unbelievably racist thing to say. I guess a, a white guy could never get away with that, but, um, he says that he's better than your goat, which means he's better than the white greatest of all time running back. The only one problem with that for Richard, he was a mediocre back. Forget the fumble in the Super Bowl. Average 3.9 yards a carry, which isn't very good. Uh, it isn't anything to, it's okay, but it's, he's not, He's not better than anybody's goat with that. And he also forgets that there's a guy named Christian McCaffrey playing right now for the San Francisco 49ers. He's leading the league in rushing. He's averaged 5.1 yards a carry. He has 20 touchdowns, 13 rushing, 7 receiving. And he is a white guy. So I might have to look into this a little bit more and uh, talk about this. We'll see. But it's a cultural thing. It is sports, but worth talking about. We'll see. I'll talk to you tomorrow